turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, we see just how far God's people wander away from the truth when they don't keep God at the center of their life. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 19, verse 1. The title of the message is, why humanity needs a standard. Judges 19. Judges 19. Well, if you've been following with our study in the book of Judges, you know we've been in the land of the strange and the weird, and it's going to get weirder, unfortunately also sadder. But the last five chapters of Judges, they contain three accounts that illustrate just how fast Israel fell away from God when they stopped following his leadership, when he stopped being their king. The first two accounts that we've looked at so far already, they illustrated lives of kind of pseudo-spirituality and lots of compromise. We're going to see more of the same in these final three chapters, but this final account is going to illustrate a very important truth, and it's this. Then when God isn't our king, and when his word isn't our standard, everyone loses. When a people don't have God's standards, everyone loses. And so, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim, who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again, having a servant with him and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. Here we see the first thing is an unbiblical marriage. We have another unfaithful Levite here. The first story, of course, was Moses' grandson who compromised, fell away from the Lord. He's not where he's supposed to be, ends up being a leader in idolatry in the nation of Israel. But here we have a similar situation. There's no king. Those days refers back to the events of chapter 18. So this is a few decades after Dan's migration to the north, where they took a land that was not theirs, a land God didn't give them. And it says there was no king, there's no standard. Very few were following the Lord's leadership in these days. That there was a certain Levite who's mirroring that 
that lifestyle. He was sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim, another Levite who has left his assigned city. Now, no why is given to us here. It just tells us where he is, that he's not in a Levitical city. He's a stranger. He's sojourning. He's somewhere where he's not supposed to be because he's not being cared for. He's not being provided for. And so he bails on the ministry and decides to go make his own living elsewhere. And so here we find him, it says, on the side, the borders. He's just within the borders of Mount Ephraim. So the same region that Moses' grandson, Jonathan, was looking for work. Apparently, this guy is looking for work, too. And while he's there, he took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, what's a concubine? Well, it's a wife who is kind of a lesser wife. This means the Levite was already married, and this would make this concubine, we've never given her name, she was a lower status wife in the family. Oftentimes, someone in that state was little more than a slave. Now, since Bethlehem, Judah, was a Levitical city, that means she was likely a Levite too. Now, God was never okay with polygamy. People say, you know, oh, the Bible justifies polygamy. The Bible never justifies polygamy. It never says this is an okay thing. So knowing that God was never cool with polygamy, it is very sad to see two Levites, two people who are supposed to be teaching others the word of God, who are supposed to be being an example to see them engaging in behavior and choices that does not please the Lord. If you're a leader, you are held to a higher standard, you know. They should have been an example of how to be different than the culture, not let the culture drag them down. And when you and I go against what pleases God, we're going to end up in trouble, and sure enough, they do. They end up in problems in their marriage. It says, and his concubine played the whore against him. That is probably a very harsh translation. The word can mean to be a harlot, but it can also mean to despise or loathe. And given that adultery was a capital crime back then, in a very male-centric culture, it's not likely that they just let her get away with it. So if that's what happened, she probably would have been put to death. So it is more likely that we take the other explanation of this word. It's more likely she left her husband because she despised him. It's not that she cheated on him. It's likely she just left him to return to her father because she despised her husband. She despised and hated the situation she was in as a second lower status wife. And she's there for four whole months. To be there for four whole months when it's only a day trip away, it's Seems to me like the Levite doesn't really care that she's gone at first. But four months later, he changes his tune, and the couple reconciles. Verse 3, and her husband arose, and he went after her to speak friendly to her. The phrase there means to speak to her heart. And it worked. To speak to her heart, to bring her back. You want to bring her back home again? He brought a servant, a couple of donkeys. He's ready to go. And, and it works because she brings him into her father's house. She comes to explain, Dad, we're reconciled. I'm going to go back with him. So, you know, what's going on here? Was he just a smooth talker or did he genuinely plan to treat her better? If the original situation wasn't so warped, maybe this could be seen as a tender moment. But this is the problem when we have no standard. Even good intentions are marred. Things that cause society to go, oh, that's so beautiful. Because we know there's something right about what's happening. Those things still break the Lord's heart because there's so much more that's evil about what's happening. What's happening here is it should have never happened. What's wrong here is it should have never taken place. Now, personally, personally, now my opinion is worth nothing, 
But I just think this guy was a smooth talker. Because if you've read this chapter, you can see he doesn't think much of her later on. That's me personally. But either way, maybe he genuinely did want to treat her better. I don't know. And when she tells her father about the recommitment, dad is ecstatic. It says, and when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. Why would he rejoice to meet the man who had mistreated his daughter? Well, their breakup would have brought his family into social disgrace. It would have caused everyone to look at him as as a a horrible father, to look at him and his family, his daughter. He's harboring someone who's left her husband. These would have been looked at as huge negatives in society. And so to see him back, to come reclaim her and that she's okay with it, that makes him happy because he's going to lose that low status in society now. And so his father-in-law, the damsel's father, he retained him. The word there means to insist and prevail. We must celebrate this. You must be my guest. You can't just leave. And so the Levite abode with him for three days. And so they did eat and drink and lodged there. And it came to pass on the fourth day when they arose early in the morning, the couple, the Levite and his concubine, when they rose up in the morning to leave, that he rose up to depart. But the damsel's father said unto his son-in-law, Comfort your heart with a morsel of bread. Don't leave on an empty stomach. In the word there, comfort means to sustain or refresh your heart. Don't leave on an empty stomach. Have some breakfast. And afterward, then you can go. And so they sat down to eat. They sat down to eat and drink both of them together. For the man's damsel's father, they're sitting there and having a good time. The damsel's father says, comfort your heart, I pray you. And so, verse 6, they sat down and eat and drink both of them together. For the damsel's father had said unto the man, be content, I pray you, and tarry all night. Let your heart be merry. Don't stress out about leaving. Stay all day. I'll take care of you today. And, and so they get to talking. They get to laughing. And before you know it, half the day is gone. So the father-in-law urges him to stay another night. And so the couple does. Well, the same thing happens the next day in verse 7. And when the man rose up to depart, his father-in-law urged him, therefore he lodged her again. Verse 8, he rose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. And the damsel's father said, come for your heart, I pray. No, don't leave an empty stomach. But the Levite says, behold now the day when the man rose up to depart, he and his concubine, his servant, his father-in-law, the damsel's father said unto him, behold now the day draws toward evening. I pray you tarry all night. Behold, the day grows to an end. Lodge here and your heart may be merry and tomorrow you go early on your way that you may go home. But the man would not tarry that night. He said, no, we're leaving. So again, he ate breakfast there again. They got to talking. The day started going by. And, and so dad says, just stay again another night. You can leave early in the morning. The Levi says, no, we really need to get going. We can't stay another night. So verse 10, it says that they rose up and they departed and they came over against Jeba, Jebus, which is Jerusalem. And there were with him two donkeys saddled and his concubine also was with him. Um, now, this is an interesting situation here. Verse 11, and when they were by Jebus, the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, come, I pray you, let us turn into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. This time, if you go with us to Israel, you're going to go and we'll show you this city of Jebus. It's way down under. You have to go way far down under, and it's really cool. You can see the walls of Jebus. Jebus was the name of Jerusalem before it was named Jerusalem. It was occupied at this present time by the Jebusites. This was a group that Israel was supposed to drive out. The tribe of Benjamin in particular was supposed to drive out. But Judges 121 says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. So the person writing this says they're still there. 
In fact, they would be there until David drove them out. So it's quite a ways away until they're going to not be there anymore, until it will be called Jerusalem and not Jebus. So again, the servant's suggestion here is another indicator of the times. He says, hey, it's getting late. Let's go into this city of the Gentiles, the Jebusites, and let's just stay there for the night. How could he consider staying in the city of an enemy? Because many in Israel didn't view them that way anymore. They didn't view them as the enemy. They were neighbors now. Now, obviously, we look at this and we say, well, who's our enemy? Our enemy is not a people group, okay? We don't hate Jebusites. We don't have Jebusites as our enemy. Our enemy is our flesh. We have three enemies the Bible describes. Our flesh, the world's philosophy of life, and then, of course, dark spiritual forces, wicked spirits in high places. Have you grown neighborly with one of those three, either with your flesh or with the world's philosophy, the way they think of how to do life? Or have you grown neighborly with, you know, the temptations of the enemy? We should not ever. We have one call with all three of those things, and it's to defeat them, never to become their neighbors. We love our neighbor. We don't embrace the world's philosophy of life. Well, the Levite here, he puts his foot down. His master said unto him, verse 12, we will not turn aside hither into the city of a stranger. That is not of the children of Israel. We will pass over to Gabeah. <laughs> a principal Levite we have here. When it was convenient for him. When it was convenient. You see, it wasn't convenient to stay in his Levitical city when the financial support dried up. He suddenly didn't feel called anymore. He feel called elsewhere. It wasn't convenient to have one wife like God says. But he drew the line at fraternizing with pagans. Can I urge you, don't be that kind of Christian? The reason the servant could even make the suggestion is because of all the other compromises the Levite had made. Why would this be an issue? His hypocrisy was plain to everyone but himself. And that's the danger of picking and choosing from God's word. Nobody's tricked except me. (laughs) When I pick and choose from God's word, nobody's tricked except me. Because you'll be the last one to know. And because you'll be the last one to know, it's often too late to halt the consequences when you finally realize it. Well, they press on to Gabeah, which is a city of the Benjamites, verse 13. And he said unto his servant, Come and let us draw near to one of these places to lodge all night in Gabeah or in Ramah. And so they passed on, and they went their way, and the sun went down upon them when they were by Gabeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside thither to go in and to lodge in Gabeah. And when he went in, he sat him down in a street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. Now, the word there, street, refers to the public square, usually near the gates of the city. So they travel, it's nighttime, they come in, and they just kind of sit down in the gates of the city. And when you see someone sitting down in the gates of the city in a Middle Eastern culture, and you don't know who they are, the polite thing to do is to offer them hospitality. But no one offered them any hospitality. This should have been a clue that this was not the best place to spend the night. It was a great insult to refuse someone hospitality in that culture. Eventually, someone does talk to them. Verse 16, he's not from this town normally though. Verse 16 says, And behold, there came an old man from his work out of the field at evening which also was of Mount Ephraim. So he's from where this Levite's been staying. And he sojourned in Gabeah. So he's not from Gabeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. So he's from a different tribe, but these guys are from the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now it says here, verse 17, and when he had lifted up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man. So now we're getting his perspective. He saw the traveling Levite. He saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city. And so the old man said to him, where are you going? Where you come from? It's late. What are you doing here? And so in verse 18, the Levite gives the explanation. He says unto him, we are passing from Bethlehem, Judah, toward the side of Mount Ephraim, from thence am I. And I went to Bethlehem, Judah, but I am now going to the house of the Lord, and there's no man that receives me to house. Yet there's both straw and provender for both our donkeys. There's bread and wine also for me and for your handmaid and for your young man, the young man, which is with your servants. There's no want of anything. I, I just need a place to stay, you know. When the old man still doesn't invite him into his home, the Levite answers the rest of the question and brings up his spiritual position. I'm a Levite. I'm going to the house of the Lord. Now, the house of the Lord is a tabernacle at this point in time. There's no permanent temple. It moves around. At this point in time, it would be at Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is far to the north. He doesn't have anything to offer to the Lord. So my guess is he's insinuating that he's headed there to serve. Now, Levites, because there were so many of them, they didn't just go to serve whenever they wanted to. They had to be selected. They would draw lots. And when your lot was drawn, you'd be selected to go serve the Lord. There's no mention of this. He's going to get his wife. He's going to win her back. There's no mention of going to the house of the Lord. So when he kind of starts to throw his weight about, oh, I'm serving the Lord. I'm a Levite. The guy still doesn't offer to take him in. And so after he pauses and the guy doesn't offer to take him in, he explains their current dilemma. We don't need food or drink. We just need a safe place to sleep. The old man, though, doesn't seem to need all those reassurances. He just seemed curious because in verse 20, he offers him hospitality. And the old man said, peace be with you. Shalom, which means I wish you well in every way. You don't need to explain. He says, howsoever, let all your wants lie upon me. Just do not lodge in the street. He says, I am happy to help you out. I want to take care of you. I'm happy for you to be my honored guest. Just do one thing. Do not sleep out here. And so verse 21, he brought him into his house, gave him provender for the donkeys, and they washed their feet and did eat and drink. I mean, finally some true hospitality. Things seem to be going better. But as the night goes on, we see why no one offered them a place to sleep. The Levite and his family and his servant were targets, verse 22. Now, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, they beset the house around about and they beat at the door and spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring forth the man that came into your house that we may know him. So we first see an unbiblical marriage. Now we see a wicked town. These men surround the city. They're called sons of Belial. The word means worthless people, wicked people, troublemakers. And they're not just trying to make new friends. The word here that we may know him means to have sex. And it's certainly not the conceptual type. Now, this is very similar to the incident in Sodom with Lot and the two angels who were his guests. You remember where the people of Sodom surrounded the guy's house, banged on the door, demanded that he send out Lot so they could rape him. And so this is a similar situation. The difference is this isn't Sodom. This is an Israeli city. This is God's people. Now, I highly doubt the city of Gibeah became like this overnight. 
But it didn't take long to get from, we will serve the Lord in front of Joshua to gang rape. Not long at all. How does that happen? Well, when God isn't the king of my life, and when God's word isn't my standard for everything, by definition, I am my own king, right? I am my own king, and I determine my standard by very definition. If I say God is not my king, and his word isn't my standard, then by definition, I am my own king, and I determine my standard. Now, when I am my own king, and I determine my standard, that means there's no limit to who I can become. There is none. Now, while that mindset is bad enough, when the principle, that principle, that I'm my own king and I determine my standard, when that principle is then communicated to a next generation who has zero of your experience of how God does things and how doing things God's way brings blessing, they don't have any of the benefits of your relationship with God. And thereby, they lack some of the restraint you might retain despite your incorrect approach to life. When you take that and then extrapolate it to a third generation, it's not difficult to lose any resemblance of your grandparents' spiritual character. It's not difficult at all. See, that's why it's foolish to say, well, my sin only hurts me, man. No person lives in a vacuum. Everything we do creates waves around us that impact what's closest to us. Everything we do. Now, that's a blessing, right? If God is your king and his word is your standard, right? We have that beautiful promise in the book of Proverbs as it concerns our children. It says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? A beautiful promise, excellent promise. The word train up, the original meaning means to make narrow, to make narrow. It came to mean to put something into the mouth, to inspire, to initiate someone into something. So when it says, train up a child in the way it should go, it's talking about inspiring your child to begin to put something into their mouth, to initiate them into something. So what are parents to inspire their children to do? What are parents initiating their children into? The narrow path, right? The narrow path. That's what that word means, to train up, to make narrow. We are inspiring them into the narrow path. And what is the narrow path? That God is my king and his word is my standard, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. That's our job, to train up a child in the way that he should go, the narrow path. That is part of my job as a parent, one of many jobs as a parent, to put that into their mouth, to initiate them onto that path, to inspire them to take that path. Now, There's a very important truth about this. That inspiration, that initiation, that feeding cannot be accomplished only with verbal instruction. Cannot. When we teach our toddlers to eat or walk, what do we often do? I don't know about you, like they make fun of it in movies sometimes when they're feeding the baby with the really yucky, whatever it is, when you're trying to feed them, starting to get them to eat real food. And oftentimes you'll see the person as a caricature of what we do. You know, nom, 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 right? You know, same thing when we walk. We hold their hands and take a step, you know, and we, we mirror it for them. You know, one of the tragedies of child neglect and child abuse 
when you find those who are in situations like that, they never had that. And so there are basic things in life that they don't have at an age where maybe you look at them and you go, you know, this kid, he's, he's eight years old. Why is he acting like a four-year-old? Well, because he never had a mom or a dad who loved him enough to do those things with him, to mirror how to do life, how to do basic things. Something to remember next time a child like that is acting out. When we teach our toddlers to eat or to talk or walk, we're a mirror to them to see how it works. We'll make the motions or the sounds of eating while we bring the spoon to their lips to show them how it's done. We're not just telling them what to do. We're showing them how to do it. Our kids will see right through an instruction for them that we violate. Our kids will see right through an instruction that we give to them that we violate. And what we'll teach them is a very different truth than the one you think you are. So when we ask ourselves, what kind of waves are we creating? Let's create the right waves. Because God promises if we initiate and inspire our children into this narrow path, it will never be removed from them. They will know clearly what the narrow way is. And they will know that you initiated them into it no matter how old they get. That narrow path will never leave the inside of them no matter how far away they walk from it. And that gives them the best chance to come back if they go astray. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Thy strong on me will save.